Well, good evening, everybody. Friends, Jesus lives. Amen. Amen. My name is Rowan Kemp. I lead the staff team here at the EU, and I want to especially extend my welcome to all of those who've joined us here tonight for Supporters' Night here at the EU Annual Conference. It's really exciting to have you join us here in particular. Uh, For some of you, you were here very recently. You might have been here with us as a student even just last year, and this is all hopefully familiar to you in a lovely way. For some of you, it's been a while since you've been here and you go, wow, okay, this is a bit different, different location and things are a bit bigger. For some of you, it's been a long time since you were here at an EU annual conference and this is fully weird. <laughs> this is just really strange. Uh, I've told the story before, but in 1376, when I was first at the EU annual conference, <laughs> there were 77 people at it which is probably about that group just there. (laughs) It was just a very, very different experience. But no matter how long it is since you've uh, been at EU Annual Conference, or this is your very first night ever at an EU conference because you're uh, one of our wonderful, valuable supporters of the EU Grads Fund and the Ministry on the campus, we want to say thank you for making the journey up to join with us tonight. Uh, Karajong is not quite the ends of the earth, but it's pretty close. And we're really glad that you could come and join us. I realise I've just offended you if you live in the Blue Mountains. My apologies. Okay. (laughs) Well, this year at Annual Conference, we've been looking at the person of Jesus Christ. In Talk 1, we looked at Jesus in the Gospels and the unexpected nature of the Kingdom of God. Talk 2, Monday night, we looked at Jesus' resurrection and his identity as fully God and fully man. And then last night in talk three, we looked at the centrality of Jesus' death and what it achieved for us. Such great grace. Well, the question. Hopefully you've got an outline. Hand up if you do not have an outline for some reason. We have some spares. Everyone's got an outline. That's pretty fantastic. Excellent. Tonight we're going to ask this question. If Jesus is alive... If he is the living Lord, as we believe that he is, then what is he doing now? What's he doing, I mean, right now? According to my little thing here, it's 8.03pm on what, today the 30th? So for those people listening on in, you know, MP3 land, it's 8.03pm on the 30th of whatever month it is, June 2010. What is Jesus doing right now? Because that's a question that's not just of theoretical interest. It's a question that has some real bite to it. Precisely because there's actually a lot of things that we would like to see Jesus do in the world. See, our world is a terrible mix of both the glorious and the gross. It's a mix of profound pleasure and phenomenal pain. There is a heck of a lot that we would like Jesus, the living Lord, to be doing right now. So what is he doing? Now to answer that question, the New Testament actually pushes us to ask a different related question. 
The question the New Testament asks us to ask is, where is Jesus now? If we can answer the where question, then we'll get a handle on the what is he doing now question. Because Jesus' location is the key to his present occupation. So where is Jesus right now? So I remember many years ago being at an EU annual conference and we sang a song called, I Believe in Jesus. Uh, The words to the second verse go like this. Now, do you want me to sing it? Yeah, Yeah, I knew that's right. And frankly, I need whatever gimmicks I can have. So here we go. So you might want to close your ears, because I'm not actually much of a singer, but you'll remember the moment. I believe in Jesus. Anyone know it? Okay, you can sing it with me. That'll help. Embarrass yourself. I believe in you, Lord. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died and rose again. I believe you paid for us all. All sounding pretty good, right? Here we keep going. And I believe that you're here now. I Beautiful, beautiful. Let's keep going. Standing in our midst, here with the power to heal now. And the grace to forgive. Well done. I'm very impressed. Now, now songs are very powerful communicators of theology, of truth. That's why we vet, we, we look at carefully all the songs we sing at Ancon. Because when we sing, we teach, we proclaim. Now, my difficulty with this song is that line sung to the living Jesus, I believe that you're here now, standing in our midst. Is that the answer to our question? Where is Jesus now? Standing in our midst? Invisible? Sort of like Harry Potter with an invisibility cloak. Was that... Is he... Is he here now, standing in our midst? Is he in that empty chair next to you? (laughs) See, there are two problems, two problems with what this song says. Two problems. First, how can Jesus be in multiple places at once? The New Testament teaches that Jesus isn't some disembodied spirit. He has a real physical resurrection body of flesh and blood. So if he is spatially located here in the room with us tonight, how could he be with another group of Christians somewhere else singing the same song? It actually, this what this song teaches, does not fit with Jesus' bodily resurrection. Second problem is that what this song says there is just not in the Bible. We do get Jesus appearing to different people at particular times, especially in those first 40 days after his resurrection, and even later, I'm thinking Paul on the Damascus Road, and we have him appearing in visions, like uh, John uh, to the Apostle John at the beginning of the book of Revelation. But we're not told anywhere that Jesus is physically everywhere at once. 
Now, if you're thinking about that, you go, hang on, hang on, Rowan, because what about Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says, surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. Ha, Rowan, (laughs) you're wrong because Jesus himself says he will be with us always. Well, yes, not bad. We'll come back to that. But the New Testament, I think, does give an answer to the question of where is Jesus now? So let's look at the answer it gives. There on your page, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, Luke's account of what's known as Jesus' ascension. When Jesus had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, no doubt this was yet another very weird experience for Jesus' disciples. Cloud surfing. Cool. That's what's next in the program, is it? A bit of cloud surfing. Wonder when he's going to come back down from that cloud. Well, the answer was, from the two messengers, was he isn't coming back down, at least not for a while. That's the point of the two messengers. What are you doing, standing around looking up into the sky? Hasn't Jesus given you a job to do? Get on with it. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. He's given them a job description. They have to wait to be clothed with power from on high, but they weren't to stand around just looking up into the sky. So there's the first part of our answer to this question of where is Jesus? He's in heaven. Now, the tricky thing is that the word heaven has two meanings in the New Testament. It can just mean the expanse of the sky. And Luke uses it that way just there in that passage in verses 10 and 11 when he says they were standing looking toward heaven. That is, they were looking up into the sky. But it can also mean heaven as the place where God dwells. In the sense that Jesus uses it in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven. He's not saying our Father who is in the atmosphere. He's saying our Father who is in heaven, his place, the realm where God dwells. And I think you get that meaning in this same passage when the two messengers say Jesus has been taken from the disciples into heaven. They mean he's been taken to the realm where God dwells. But see, God's heaven is is not up there spatially. Despite Jesus' vertical ascent on the cloud, where is, by the way, up there if you're on different sides of the globe? So is heaven that direction? But what about if you're down under? Do you point downwards? Heaven's that way. Do you see what I'm saying? It makes no sense spatially if, if God's realm is just vertical, upwards. The point is that Jesus is not here. He's in heaven, in the presence of his heavenly Father. And you can see this in John chapter 20, verse 17, which is there on your page. Immediately after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus said to Mary, Do not hold on to me, 
because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So what was Jesus doing? He was ascending where? To his Father. In his resurrected body, he was going to be with his God and Father and he would not be here anymore. But the New Testament's even more specific. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 there. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God has placed Jesus at his right hand in heaven. And that is the clearest and repeated New Testament answer to the question of where is Jesus now? The answer is, he's at the right hand of his heavenly Father. That's where he is. So our task tonight is to explore what that means. If that's where he is, what does that mean? And what does that mean for what he's doing tonight, today, this week? Well, before we get on to that though, some of you may still be scratching your heads a bit and saying, yeah, okay, good, so Jesus is in heaven, but frankly, where is he? Like, if he's got a real physical... Now, I know, this question, if you're an art student, economic student, you're going, oh yeah, what? What are you worried about? But if you're a science person, an engineer, (laughs) you're probably going, well, yeah, actually, that's a jolly good question. If he's raised with a physical body, if he's flesh and blood, where is he in our space-time universe? Like, if he has flesh and blood, he must be somewhere. Where is he? Now, for some of you go, right, this, if you're going to try and answer that, that's just going to be a waste of time. That's just speculation. Let me tell you why I actually think that's a really important question. I'll tell you why. One of your challenges, may I say, if you're a Christian person, one of your challenges is to integrate your Christian faith with all the other things you know. You need to integrate your Christian faith with your understanding of the political system, with your understanding of economics, with your, more personally, with your understanding of an experience of suffering. You need to integrate your Christian faith with your experience of suffering or of disappointment or of grief. And you need to integrate your understanding of the Christian faith and the person of Jesus with your, your science-informed view of the universe. And I'll tell you what, if you don't do that, you know what happens? And tragically, I've seen this happen. Is you end up being a bit dualistic. You end up split. You have your Christian faith and that believes all this sort of stuff. But then you have the rest of your life. And over time, if you don't work hard to integrate those things, that gap gets wider and wider and wider and you end up in more and more personal just tension. You go to Bible study, you go to church and you, you're reading the Bible and just over time you just go, I, this, this can't be true. I mean, I've been here for years and just it's just, that's what happens if you do not integrate your understanding of God's truth with all your other experience and knowledge. So this question actually matters. And for some of you go, yes, this, this is a good question. 
And for others of you go, this is not my personal question, I say, that's fine, follow it, because you want to serve and minister to people for the rest of your days, don't you, in the name of Jesus? And there's going to be people who have this struggle. So you need to sometimes work hard to integrate. So what? I'm just, just a little aside, really, in tonight's sort of talk, just to say, well, how do we integrate that? How do we integrate Jesus' physical resurrection with the fact that we can't actually see him? So it doesn't matter... How, how sharp a telescope you get, you are never going to be able to spy heaven. You're not going to get a Twitter message that says, Hubble discovers home of Almighty. <laughs> Jesus isn't hiding behind Saturn. So uh, T.F. Torrance, T.F. Torrance actually will... There's a little little picture of him, but we'll come back to him in a minute. T.F. Torrance was a Christian theologian who spent considerable time thinking through how the Christian faith, as taught in the Bible, relates to our contemporary scientific understanding of the universe. And he tackled this question of Jesus' ascension. And one of the first things he says is, if you're going to understand Jesus, then you need to understand Jesus in categories that are appropriate to who Jesus is. I mean, that just makes sense, right? Because if you're going to understand politics, you don't apply your chemistry categories to understand politics. You don't say, you know, was, so was federal labour's sort of explosion last week, was that an endothermic or an exothermic reaction? <laughs> and you don't apply your political categories to your chemistry. Okay, Mr. Hydrian, hyd, hyd, hydrogen Chloride. You need to repent of your neocon fascist political views and have a less violent reaction when I put you with this chemical over here. Like you just, you don't mix and match, right? You take the category that works for the thing that the thing is. So when we're trying to understand our Lord Jesus, what are the right categories? Well, who is he? He's fully human and he's fully God. Now that helps us, right? Because when we come to something like heaven, we tend to default to human categories. We think, okay, three dimensions like space-time, like it must be a place because that's the sort of being that we are and that's how we think of place. But heaven is not a... it's God's place, God's not limited to three dimensions like us. So the way Torrance thinks it through, he says the ascended Jesus, whilst existing in a physical resurrection body, is not limited in his ascension to a spatial location in our space-time universe because he's ascended to God's place. God's place is not limited to three dimensions. Well, then what about Jesus' statement at the end of Matthew 28? Surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. Well, we have to be careful and not read that verse in isolation from the rest of the Bible. In John 14 to 16, what does Jesus say there? Jesus very clearly says there that he is leaving this world and his disciples, but that in his place he will send another comforter. He will send the Spirit to be with us. 
And since the Spirit is identified in the New Testament at various points as the Spirit of Christ, I take it that what Jesus meant in Matthew 28 is that he is with us to the very end of the age by his Spirit that has taken up residence in our hearts as his people. That doesn't mean Jesus is not with us. He is with us in a powerfully present way through his spirit that is within us. And so T.F. Torrance puts it like this. He says, it is through the spirit that things infinitely disconnected, disconnected by the distance of the ascension, are nevertheless infinitely closely related. Though the spirit, uh, through the Spirit, Christ is nearer to us than we are to ourselves. And then he goes on to say, And we who live and dwell on earth are yet made to sit with Christ in heavenly places. So if I had to summarise what, what heaven is, I think I would try to say something like this. Heaven is the present, real, unseen realm of God's presence from where the resurrected Lord Jesus rules, which necessarily as God's place, superbounds, which is a made-up word, superbounds our created space-time, but to which we are linked in Christ by the Spirit through faith. So that's going to make for a really interesting question time tomorrow night. Now, all of that, as I said, is somewhat of an aside. It's all trying to think through that question of what it means to say Jesus is in heaven, given our modern sort of scientific understanding of the world. But actually, the New Testament isn't really interested in Jesus' spatial location. It doesn't say anything about it. And as a general principle, what the Bible affirms is more significant than that over which it is silent. And what the Bible affirms repeatedly is that Jesus' location is at the Father's right hand. And ultimately, pressing down on that truth, what does that mean? That's going to tell us much more important information about Jesus and our world than any speculation about his space-time location. So, what does it mean that Jesus is at the right hand of God? Well, you can see there on your outline, according to the Old Testament, the right hand of God is a position of powerful victory and judgment over God's enemies. So in Exodus chapter 15 verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. Or Psalm 48, your right hand, O God, is filled with victory. And so hence, God's right hand is a place from whence comes salvation and refuge. Psalm 17, verse 7. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Saviour of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. That's where there's salvation and refuge in the Lord's right hand. So given that the Messiah is the one who secures salvation for God's people, it's not surprising to find that the Messiah is at the Lord's right hand. So Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends out from Zion your mighty scepter. 
rule in the midst of your foes. So you're starting to get a bit of a picture of what the right hand of the Father means. It's a place of salvation, of victory. It's where the Messiah sits to deliver that salvation. But what about those clouds? When Jesus was taken up on the clouds, is that significant? You betcha. What's significant about the clouds? Well, Daniel chapter 7 In Daniel chapter 7, the Lord gives Daniel a vision. You can see it there on your outline. Daniel writes, As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a son of man. Now, what did Jesus, what was the title Jesus continually used about himself, his preferred title? Son of man. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. So there's this one like a son of man who comes to the Lord, Yahweh, the ancient one, on the clouds of heaven. And he's given in the Lord's presence a universal and unending kingship. So I take it that the the clouds at at Jesus' ascension are a sign to the disciples and to us of who Jesus is. He is this son of man of Daniel 7. The one who has now been ushered into the presence of the Lord and has received this universal and unending kingdom. Coming on the clouds means coming to the Father to receive this universal and unending kingship. And even before his death and resurrection, Jesus identified himself as this soon-to-be-exalted Son of Man from Daniel 7. In his trial, when Jesus was on trial in Mark chapter 14, The high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus claims it for himself. And so it's no surprise that after the vindication from God at his resurrection, and his visible ascension on the clouds, and given the powerful enabling of the Holy Spirit that is poured out, the disciples then proclaim that this Jesus is now the one whom God has exalted to his right hand to this position of universal and unending rule. And Peter does that in Acts 2, which is the passage there on your outline. So that is where Jesus is right now. That is where he is tonight, at the right hand of his Father. But before we go further with that and ask what he's therefore doing right now, it's worth stepping back and reflecting on another way the New Testament talks about Jesus as he is right now. So point B there, Jesus' present glorification. Now you may remember on Monday night we went to WrestleMania 27, the clash of the Christologies. 
Jesus, man, God, or what? So if you weren't here, you really missed a treat. It was a, it was a stellar heavyweight theological battle. But you may remember from that night that Jesus was not adopted into divinity. His was not a one-way movement from human to divine. Or another way to put it is, it's not an elevation, it's a return to glory. The ascension of Jesus is balanced by the incarnation of God the Word. So you can see it there on the diagram on page 34. God the Son, there in the left-hand top of the U-shaped arrow, God the Son, as he existed in all eternity past, was not a human being. He was the eternal Word of God. But in the incarnation, God the Son, the eternal Word, takes on human life, not in any way ceasing to be God the Son, but taking humanity into his own being so that God the Son existed only as Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully human. So you can see the box at the bottom there, God the Son incarnate. But as Jesus approached his death, John records him praying this prayer at the bottom of that U-shaped diagram on page 34. Jesus prayed this prayer, So now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. Jesus prays that the Father would return him to glory, not by putting off his humanity. No, in his resurrection and ascension, God the Son in transformed and permanent humanity is returned to glory. So in Philippians 2, the passage in the middle of that diagram, Paul traces that same trajectory of God the Son, just in different words, but it's the same, the same idea, same message, same truth. So he says there, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him. Little footnote here, as we saw on Monday night, Paul takes some passages here from the prophet Isaiah that were about Yahweh, and he's now going to use those passages about Yahweh, use them about Jesus. And gave Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see that same trajectory. The incarnation is balanced by the resurrection and ascension, a return to glory. What does it mean for Jesus to be glorified? Well, you get a bit of a peek in the Gospels when Jesus is transfigured, when Jesus appears momentarily in transformed glory. His face shines, we're told, like the sun, and God's voice comes from a cloud declaring Jesus to be his son. And you see a vision of Jesus in his ascended glory in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. Now, just, just imagine this, if you can. 
if you can. Imagine this. John writes in this vision that he's given, he says, In the midst of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining with full force. When I saw him, I said, Ah, Jesus, so good to see you again. We haven't caught up for ages. When I saw him, though, he says, I fell at his feast feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see I am alive forever and ever and I have the keys of death and of Hades. See, it's no small thing to meet the living Lord Jesus in all his unrestrained glory. I suspect that if he were here tonight, in our midst, as the song said, in his glory, we would react just the same way John did. What else could we do but fall on our faces and worship him in love and reverent fear and trembling. Friends, that is who Jesus is tonight. He is ascended. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is glorified. He's the Lord. He's Messiah. He's the Son of Man with all authority, the one who has the name above every name, such that at his name, Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, you are Lord. And yet it is this Jesus, truly awesome, who says to you and to me, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Such is the certainty of his love and the wonder of his grace for all who've put their faith in him. Do not be afraid. Now I'm going to skip over the point at the top of page 35 because we're going to do that tomorrow night. So we've answered pretty thoroughly the question, where is Jesus now? He's at his Father's right hand in glory. He's at his Father's right hand in glory. So what's he doing now? 
Now here we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 13. It's there on your outline. Talking about the old covenant, the old covenant sacrificial system. The writer to the Hebrews says this, he says, And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, that is his own death, he sat down at the right hand of God. There's our phrase, right? Right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of God and since then has been waiting until his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Quoting there from Psalm 110. Now I was helped here by a great sermon I listened to with some EUers in a preaching course that we uh, did together just last semester as part of our EU-equipped Monday afternoon training program. Uh, This was... I'll I'll let you in on a little secret. Don't tell anyone. What happens is, it goes like this, hey, we need a new course. The courses are feeling a bit tight. We need a new course. Rowan, you better run a new course. You know, run one on preaching. Okay, okay, we'll do that. So then week by week you sort of work out, okay, what are we going to do next, what are we next? So, you know, I sit there, I surf the web, I look, I look for some sermons, is what I was surfing the web for, looking for some sermons that we could listen to that might inspire us, educate us, help us to understand the art of preaching God's truth faithfully and clearly. And I thought, I've never listened to a John Stott sermon You've heard me mention John Stott a few times, I guess, over the years. <laughs> but guess what? All of his sermons that, through his long preaching career, they're all online now. I thought, oh, hey, great, I'll get a chance to listen to a John Stott sermon. I just went online. I picked a topic totally at random. I just went, I purely bought in just on the title. How pathetic is that? But anyway, I just bought in on the title. And it, was, it, it turned out to be a, a sermon on the ascension. And uh, John Stott preached, I must say, a cracker of a sermon on the ascension. I mean, it was from 1978. That's a long time ago. That's right. It was on a gramophone that they recorded it, apparently. (laughs) And John Stott, reflecting on this passage, just had three simple points. He said, what's Jesus doing? What is then Jesus doing at the right hand of the heart? He said, just look at the passage. He says, three things. He's sitting He's waiting and he's ruling. And um, oh, he's just, that's just cutting to the chase. Yes, that's what this passage says. He's sitting. That's the first point. That's what Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting. Now, what significance is there in sitting? Well, it's nice that they brought this lounge here. Because I'll tell you what I do. I tell you what I do when I get home from annual conference. Actually, I lie. This is what I used to do. I, I'm a father of five young children. I don't get to do this like this anymore. You have other responsibilities. But I used to when I get home from I go in, I throw my bags in the corner and I leave them there for a week, see if they would put themselves away. They never got there. Anyway. And then I do this. Oh. Why do I do that? Because it has finished. You sit down. (laughs) You sit down when it's finished. 
When you've finished doing your thing, that's when you flop down on the couch. Look at verse 12 there on your outline. Jesus sits down at God's right hand when he's finished his sacrificial work. He's made his sacrifice. It's done. So he sits down. Whereas the Old Testament priests, they had to keep on standing because they had to offer the sacrifices again and again and again and again. One sacrifice. One effective sacrifice from the Lord Jesus and he sits because he's finished his sacrificial work. And the same idea is there actually in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. You write that down, Hebrews 1 3. It's exactly the same idea. He sits when he's finished his work. There's no need now, see, for any more sacrifices. There's no need for him to do any more. And guess what? There's no need, therefore, for you to do any more. If he sat down, because it's finished, because the work is done dealing with sin, then you need to get that your salvation is accomplished. There's no need for you to do more as if that could accomplish your own salvation because he's done it all. So I just want to say, if, if he's finished dealing with your sin, don't keep beating yourself up about things that you've done in the past that you have brought to the Lord Jesus, that you have repented of in the power of the Spirit. Receive the forgiveness of from his finished work. You do not need to do any more. You may still feel shame. You may still feel embarrassed. But you're not guilty anymore. God has forgiven you. And depending on what you've done, you may still have to live with some of the consequences of your action. Maybe in your relationships with others because of the sin that you're involved with. Maybe in your present experience you will still experience consequences. Maybe even in the eyes of the legal system, our legal system, depending on what, you, what, what that was, you may have consequences to face. That's right. That's fair. You may need to make restitution with people that you have injured or harmed or hurt. But if you have come to Christ in repentance and faith, you will not bear the divine penalty for that sin. Because Christ, your high priest, he sat down. It's dealt with. But even though Jesus' great work of dealing with sin at the cross is finished, he is still interceding for us. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. So having offered the one effective sacrifice for sins, Jesus lives forever at the right hand of God, to intercede on your behalf so that the benefits he secured for you 
are always applied to you, for you, in your case. And there's a similar idea there in Hebrews 7, 23 to 25, and in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. But do you see there Paul's point in that Romans passage? If Christ who died and was raised and who now has been exalted at God's right hand, that most exalted of all positions, if this Jesus is interceding for you such that the benefits of his death are applied to you, if all that's true, who could possibly condemn you? No one. No one. Mind you, the evil one will try to condemn you. He's the father of lies and he loves to condemn. He'll try and get you to condemn yourself. I'm too sinful. I've really gone too far this time. God's patience must certainly have run out with me. He couldn't possibly forgive that sin that I feel so badly about, even though I've repented of it and brought it... The evil one will try all sorts of deception and lies to get you to condemn yourself. So hear the word of God. Friend, you want to know what Jesus is doing now, what he's doing tonight? This is what he's doing. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, having given himself as a propitiation for our sins, and he's now interceding with the Father on our behalf so that what he's done, what he's accomplished, will be applied to you. That's what he's doing right now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not all Jesus is doing at God's right hand. He's also, point three, waiting. Back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 13 there. Jesus is waiting at God's right hand until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. That is... Our experience here and now is not the final state of play. There is a final great stage to come and we're going to look at that tomorrow night. Jesus is waiting for that final stage and that's what we'll look at. But the fact that Jesus is himself waiting, that's important because it means that we have to wait as well. It answers one of the questions with which I started tonight. What's Jesus doing now? In particular, why isn't Jesus doing more now to fix up all the problems of our present existence? Well, the answer is Jesus is waiting and that final restitution will come. But like Jesus, we have to wait for it. But it's not to say Jesus is waiting and doing nothing. Don't think that. That's not the case because he is currently ruling, ruling. Being at the right hand of God is a position of rule and authority. Jesus is ruling now, even though we don't yet see all things brought under his feet. In particular, we saw earlier, the right hand of God is a place from whence comes salvation and refuge. So Jesus rules from God's right hand by saving. That's how Jesus is ruling, by saving people. It's a dynamic rule that saves people into his kingdom. So as Peter says in Acts chapter 5, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and saviour. Saviour. 
that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So Jesus' rule extends as people, not just from Israel, but now from all nations, respond to him in repentance and faith. As they acknowledge him as Lord and as they are united to him by faith through the Spirit. So we saw here last night, remember we... um, Different brothers and sisters here stood up who'd become Christians in the last six months and in the last 12 months and in their time at university. And that was really an exciting moment, actually. We, I don't know, maybe we're, many of us are just a little bit subdued and you sort of think, oh, well, God. <laughs> Man, you know, one brother who, who is now a brother, he became a Christian this morning. That's fantastic. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus' rule has extended. His rule has extended because yet another loved person has been saved. That's his dynamic rule. And the way Jesus saves from his position at God's right hand is through sending. He sends in order to save. He sends messengers out with his gospel. So here's Matthew chapter 28, that great, what's known as the Great Commission passage. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Just by the way, that's a very Daniel 7 type language, isn't it? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Jesus brings people from all nations under his rule through the preaching of his gospel by his disciples in order to make more disciples, more followers. Not of You don't make disciples of yourself, you make disciples, followers of Jesus, that Jesus to whom all this authority has been given. Moreover, we're not just to proclaim the message about Jesus, we're to make disciples, verse 20, which means teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. That's why in the EU we don't just have, even though our our first object is to present students with the Christian gospel and lead them to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are a mission task force above all else, But also, we have a second object, don't we? Which is to edify believers, to grow them to maturity in that faith. So this then is what Jesus is doing now. He's ruling. He's extending his rule by sending and saving. And as Jesus himself said a bit earlier in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. That's the phase that we are in. That's the time that we are in. So let's uh, draw some of this together. Now each talk here we've been uh, asking this question or, or looking at with this particular idea of Jesus revealing reality. What reality do we see here tonight? Well, the reality we see is that Jesus, the Saviour, reigns. That's what the ascension means. Jesus, the Saviour, reigns. He's reigning at his Father's right hand in glory 
and he's saving because that's the nature of his dynamic rule. So that Jesus tonight is the reigning saviour, let me just say that is the decisive and central reality that defines our time. This truth. It's not global warming that defines our time, our age. It's not post-GFC that defines our period. The great present reality over all of our lives and all the details of our lives is that Jesus, the living Saviour, reigns. So, friends, is that reality firmly fixed in your mind? Does that truth live? Does it live in your life? In all the complexities, all the troubles, all the joys, all the uncertainties of your life, is it illumined by this central reality that Jesus, the Saviour, reigns? That's the reality that has shaped the EU for 80 years this year. And that's the reality that must continue to shape all of us until he returns. Now, what we're going to do is... uh, break there for a few minutes. I just encourage you just to stand up, stretch, and I'd like you to introduce yourself to someone you haven't met before, just for two minutes, and then we'll sit down, and I've got some groovy maps to show you. Okay, now I've got some really cool maps that I want to show you. Um, these maps are exciting and troubling. See, the question that we're just going to finish with here, there's sort of, we've looked at what the Bible has to say, we've sort of captured this, you know, what is Jesus doing now? He's at the right hand of his Father in glory. He's reigning by sending and saving. We've got all that, right? We've got God's word clear to us, his message. So the question that occurs to me is, How is his mission going? Matthew chapter 28. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptising them, teaching them. How's his mission going? I mean, you've got to think, man, when he said that, there were like 12 of them. 12. How's it been going? So, I'll show you some maps. By about... The year 100. Now, can you see that? Can you see the light yellow sort of shading? A little? I know it's a bit hard. It's sort of, uh, by about the year 100, you can see that the news about Jesus had spread around that Mediterranean through North Africa. It even extended, they, they, as far as they can tell, as far as the subcontinent, as far as India. It has gone across to the UK, um, though that light-coloured shading, that means, that means that they estimate less than 2% of the population of those places was actually Christian. So it had spread thin. What about by the year 500? Yeah, you like that chip? Look, let's just do that again, watch. Whoa. Um, <laughs> 
the darker the colour, the higher the percentage who claim the name of Christ. Now, these are really hard, hard to do, these sort of stats, right? And, and they're really just saying, look, anyone who claims the name of Jesus, who claims to be a Christian, will We'll just use that. Now, you can well say, well, there's lots of people who claim to be Christian, but who probably aren't. And yes, I would agree. But just for the sake of this exercise, we'll go with the stats that they've put together and we'll work with that. So you can see by about year 500 that the Christianity had extended not much further than it had by the year 100, but it had, there were a higher percentage of Christians who were, who were, um, of the population who were Christians. Then by the year 1000, you can see that it had spread across, right across sort of uh, what we would call Russia, spread through East and uh, Northern Europe. It had spread down into China and Asia, though just thinly. Though, I don't know if you noticed, but there was a decline in North Africa between 500 and 1,000. There were... There were more Christians percentage-wise in North Africa in 500 than there were by the year 1000. What about by the year 1500? So the gospel extends down thinly into Africa, across into South America, solidified in Northern Europe. But did you notice it also weakened? It weakened in India and the subcontinent over that 500-year period. Let's use a smaller increment. What about 1750, 1750 AD? So the gospel extends across into North America, through South America, and thinly into West Africa. Hey, Australia's still white. In the sense of colour <laughs> on the map. I'm just moving on. That was a. We'll edit that out of the tape. No worries. Thanks, Steve. That was a. What a slip. What about by 1910? I'll tell you why I'm picking 1910 in a moment. What about by 1910? Now. This is where I say you can question these, right? Because really, did we have that high a percentage number of people who were followers of the Lord Jesus, disciples of Jesus, or were they ticking Christian on their census forms? Do you know what I mean? Like, so there's questions to be asked here. But what you do notice is, um, again, that it's now the gospel is quite weak, quite weak in North Africa, where once it had been very strong. It has sort of spread around the globe in various levels. Now, 1910 was a hundred years ago, right? So it's sort of worth comparing it to today. And this is what they think. In the last hundred years, that's the change that's happened. So there's been a big push into Africa, but also a continual... Uh, and, and growth also in China and India in the last hundred years. So that just sort of gives you a bit of a... Set. Now remember, Jesus stood there with 12... And by 2010, this is how it's looking. However, when you start to ask the question, well, who actually believes in Jesus and who believes in other things? The world looks more like this, actually. 
Now, the blue are people who claim the name of Christ. The green is Islam. The pink is Hindu. The orange is Buddhist. And the sort of skin colour in the top right there is agnostic or sort of folk religion. Are the two different ones. So that's 2010. That's where they, that's what people are believing. And the stronger the colour, the higher the proportion of people who are believing that in that particular place. In fact, what's happened over the last hundred years is this. You can see over the last hundred years, Christianity, Hinduism and Buddhism have basically not changed in their percentage. Chinese folk religion has massively died, massively died. And I mean, a lot of people live in China. It's a large section of the world's population. But Chinese folk religion has just sort of wiped out through the communist, um, through the communist rule there. And the ones that have really grown in the last hundred years are Islam and agnosticism. That's where the growths happen over the last hundred years. And when you ask the question, well, whereabouts has that grown? You can see here, uh, if it's the stronger the blue, that's where the growth has happened in the last hundred years. If it's brown, there's been a decline. So there's various places in the world where Christianity has actually declined in the last hundred years. But it's really grown in China and Africa. But what about if we said just in the last ten years, right? In, in your very clear memory, the last ten years, it looks more like this. Again, deep blue are the places where it's grown in the last 10 years, but brown is where Christianity is declining around the globe. Where it's growing is places like Afghanistan, 19% per annum over the last 10 years. Mongolia, Cambodia, Timor. Well, I wonder who's heard the gospel in the last 100 years. In 1910, it sort of looked like this. You can see a lot of people had heard the gospel in some form in, in what we call the West, but Africa, Asia, very many fewer people had actually heard the gospel. What about by now? In the, that, was, that was 100 years ago. What about what changes happened? We've seen we've done a lot more work in Africa over the last 100 years and also in those areas of China, India and Asia. What do they predict will happen in the next 40 years? This is what they predict. They predict a decline in people who claim the name of Jesus in Australia, North America, South America, parts of Africa, basically all of Western Europe. Now, those stats there have excluded growth by birth. That is, they've said this is just conversion growth. These are conversion growth stats. So Christianity may increase in Australia, but it will increase because Christians have kids or because of immigration. People come from other places and they already believe in Jesus. So taking all that out, just asking about conversion growth, this is what they think will happen over the next 40 years. If things continue as they have, barring a work of God's spirit, barring the activity of his people, this is the trend. This is what we're looking at. Now, here's an interesting one. Okay, so, we, you know, Jesus says we need more workers out in the harvest field. The harvest field is ripe. Pray the Lord would send more workers out. Where are the workers? Where are the Christian workers? This one shows you where the Christian workers are in the world. The deeper the colour, the higher the number of workers. 
Where are there not many workers? In the very places where other religions are strong. Because not many workers go there. What about access to the scriptures? If no work can go, at least they would have the scriptures, right? Well, here's some interesting things. Here are the largest people groups in the world with no portion of the Bible in their language. Not a portion, not, not a chapter. I'm not saying they don't have the whole Bible, they just, they've got nothing in their language. Three people groups in China, all who have in excess of 38 million people, which is beggars belief, doesn't it? And then two Arabic people groups as well. Huge numbers of people around the world who can't read God's word in their own language. And then finally, an attempt to map out how many non-Christians in these countries know a Christian. Right, because that's going to be important for presenting the good news of Jesus, isn't it? That non-Christians need to know a Christian. And uh, what you can see here, I'll, I'll give you a bit of a, a hint to what the colours represent. Uh, what it's saying there is that in Australia, between 60 and 90% of non-Christians know a Christian. So you, line, you know, get a random sample of 10 non-Christians from across Australia, the chances are six, somewhere between six and nine of them will know a Christian. In places like uh, India or China, the number is between 10 and 40%. So you line up 10 people from their places and somewhere between one and four of those non-Christians will know a Christian at all. And the others, no. And then you go places like the Middle East or Mongolia or North Africa, Northwest Africa, and it's less than 10%. So you take 10 non-Christians, line them up and ask, do you know a Christian, do you know a Christian, do you know a Christian, do you know a Christian? It's less than 10%, so the chances are none of them will say yes. There's that few Christians there. We have a way to go in Jesus' mission. There's real need out there. I thought it would be fascinating if we could have similar maps of Sydney, wouldn't it? Where are the, what parts of Sydney, you know, do non-Christians, it's very hard for them to know a Christian. What parts of Sydney is Christianity growing? What parts are there strong other faith commitments? It would be interesting to do it for Australia. The point of raising all this information is just twofold as I wrap up. First, it's this. Knowing the state of Jesus' mission to the world ought to fuel our prayers. It ought to lift our eyes to the abundant harvest fields and, as Jesus said, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out more workers into that harvest field because the harvest is ripe. So it ought to fuel our prayers. But second is this. There's just a reality that in the last hundred years, the expansion of Jesus' kingdom as he's sent out people in order to save, a lot of that expansion has, been, has come from people who've been involved in universities. 
It's been university students and university graduates who have often been at the forefront of that expansion. And I don't have time to talk about some of the stories there, like the stories of the Cambridge Seven or the great student mission conferences, student mission conferences, the conference in Edinburgh in 1910, 100 years ago, where they had as their watchword the evangelisation of the world in this generation. See, now, that's a big, that's a big goal. They didn't get there, by the way. They didn't get there, but under God they did make significant inroads for Jesus' kingdom. Now, there were dangers too, actually, because they got theologically sloppy. Often in the name of pragmatism and unity and just for more effective evangelism, they actually compromised on their theology and what the scriptures actually teach. And in the end, that destroyed the movement. So don't, like, like, learn, learn the important lesson there. Don't go light on the Bible and theology in the name of greater missional activity or effectiveness. But the clarity with which they perceive the reality of their time, that Jesus the Saviour reigns, that energised a whole movement. Now, I think the challenge for us is what I've called geographical inertia. And what I want to do here is I want to put my shoulder to the, to the boulder that is our inertia and try, with my pretty mighty bulk, uh, give it a bit of a push to change geographic inertia into missional mobility, to give us some momentum. I'm not talking tonight actually about giving up your career and becoming a missionary or giving up your career and becoming a pastor or a full-time church worker. I'm not talking about that actually at all. I do hope for some of you that that is what you would do. And I do hope for all of us that we will seriously consider that of whether that is an appropriate thing for us to be pursuing given what we know and given our gifts and given the call and send of God. But what I'm talking about tonight is just mobility. See, as university grads, you will be, or you are now, and I'm talking to everybody here, students and supporters, you are highly mobile. You can pretty much get a job in lots of parts of this country. You can choose to live pretty much wherever you would like to live and still be able to get a job. You could pursue jobs in other cities. You could pursue jobs in other regional centres if you wanted to. Just in general, you have much higher mobility than many people do in our society. And I just want to challenge you to use that mobility for Jesus and his kingdom. See, I think many of us are lumbered with massive amounts of geographic inertia. If you ever move out of home at all, You move to the inner west for a few years and then you move home or back home to the North Shore or the Shire. See? Thank you. You proved the point better than I could have ever done it. To settle down and have a family because you want to bring them... Now, I know of a church close to a good Bible college in Sydney 
that particular church has five student ministers, people who are studying at Bible college, who work there on a Sunday, five student ministers out of a congregation of 60. So one student minister for 11 people. The two suburbs away, not very far, is another church that is in a highly cross-cultural situation. People who, the minister was telling me, land at Mascot on Saturday and they're there in the suburb and knocking on the church door on Sunday and they can't get any student minister to come. Why is that? Well, I don't know. Is it just a lack of vision? That we're not gripped by the opportunity? Is it a fear of the unknown that we're actually frightened of people who are not like us? I really hope it's not. It's just more convenient to serve here. That we try to have Jesus and comfort instead of Jesus, therefore, what will you have me do? So for whatever reason, we have a lot of geographical inertia and I'm just throwing out a challenge. I want to suggest to you that you shed the geographical baggage and you utilise your university-given mobility to think about how you might be a blessing in Jesus' global mission in places that are less resourced, where you will have more opportunities and just, frankly, let's see what God might do through us collectively, through all of us. It will be great to see a flood of servant leaders from the EU at Sydney University going throughout all of Sydney and Australia and around the world who are crystal clear on the time in which we live, the time where Jesus the Saviour reigns. Is that a pipe dream that we might see EU people go into every suburb, into every town, into every city and into every nation. Is that a pipe dream? Is that just not possible? Let's do the maths. Roughly 130 EU graduates every year. In just four years, that's over 500 people. In five, well, six, seven, some number around that, you'll all graduate eventually. (laughs) So that's all of us out there. In the next 20 years, even if the EU does not grow past its current size, that's 2,500 people sent out. You know what energises me for our work at Sydney Uni? It's this. It's this singular opportunity. People tell me, people just tell me that The EU at the moment is the largest evangelical student group in the country. And and for me, that that doesn't particularly bring pride. It doesn't particularly bring, hey, yeah. I actually feel a weight of responsibility. We have an opportunity under God to do wonderful things together for God's kingdom but we have to get over our geographic inertia. We have to embrace missional mobility. You know, at Sydney Uni, we have one EUA for every 50 students on the campus. One EUA for every 50 students on the campus. 
at Darwin, Charles Darwin University, they have one Christian student for every 800 students. There are a lot less resources there. In Florence, it's one Christian student for every 3,000 students. We are rich. We are rich. So the general question tonight, the general question tonight, is this. How will you serve him in his mission? And the pointy question is where are you prepared to go to serve him? Would you think about moving to Lakemba for Jesus and his mission? Would you think about moving to Campsie, to Fairfield? Would you think about moving to Adelaide, to Darwin, to Ballarat? Would you think about taking a job in Dubai, in Jakarta, in Shanghai. It's not that you have to go to any of these places. You're free. This is actually not a guilt trip. I'm just trying to open your eyes to the opportunity that exists for us in particular. You have the freedom, you have the choice, you have the mobility, and you know Jesus, your saviour, reigns. You have literally a world of opportunity. What are we going to do with it together? Now, this is one of those things where you can put it all out there and then, and then people go, wow, that was, yeah, wow, ooh, yeah. Makes no difference, right? I, I can't live with that. Under God, I can't live with that. We have to do something to help ourselves. So here it is. This is it. Under God, I commit for the next five years to prayerfully consider how I might serve in less resourced and less reached places in Sydney, Australia and beyond. That's not saying that it's, you, know, you have to do this, not saying you have to join me in making this commitment. It doesn't mean necessarily giving up your day job, stop being an accountant. What it, what it might mean though is actually you change churches at the end of this year. What it might mean is that actually you're going to move house. It might mean that you're going to stop one particular ministry because you're the 17th drummer in your church and start, start seeking to bring the love of Jesus to people in detention centres. I'm wondering whether you would make this commitment. Under God, I commit for the next five years to consider prayerfully how I might serve in less resourced and less reached places in Sydney, Australia and beyond. We've got a big sheet up here actually with texters. And if you would like to make this commitment, then during this next song you can come down and write your name. And I encourage you to write your name clearly because then we'll use the ANCON database to get in touch with you. But if you just scribble your name, we can't help you and we'd like to encourage you. I'd like to encourage you. So if you're prepared to make this commitment, because Jesus is the Saviour reigns, you might like to come forward during the next song and write that. And I'm, I'm asking, inviting everybody who's here tonight to consider making that commitment. Okay. Let me pray and we'll sing.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have exalted the Lord Jesus to your right hand in glory, that he is reigning, that he is sending and that he is saving. We pray that you might grant us all wisdom so we might work out how we may serve you in this mighty mission of the Lord Jesus. For his glory and namesake we pray. Amen.